call-in radio show that we host on a number of places. We are streaming live right now on Discord, YouTube Live, Clubhouse, and hopefully Twitter Spaces in just one second. Uh, for those of you who are new, my name is Dr. Cam Sapa. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and professor of psychiatry at UCSF Medical School. I am the CEO of Maximus. We are a consumer telemedicine company that helps men safely double their testosterone through prescription medications, supplements, and health coaching. Um, if you're interested in what we're doing, you can check us out at MaximusTribe.com um, and check out our protocol there. We're operating in 13 states across the country right now. Um, and as part of what we do in our program, we do a lot of health behavior coaching. So in order to make sure that you have optimal health and hormones, obviously you should be taking care of your lifestyle. So we do a lot of work around getting people to have optimal diet, exercise, sleep, focus, uh, and using social relationships. So we use actually peer coaching and peer accountability. People check in on a regular basis in terms of a committed group of people and make sure that they're actually following up on their habits. This is important, obviously, because today is December 30, 30th, and as everyone can anticipate, January 1st is just around the corner, and it's time for New Year's resolutions. Uh, and the sad uh, statistic about New Year's resolutions is that only 19% of people actually successfully keep their New Year's resolutions after two years. So this has actually been uh, found in research studies. So. That's why a lot of people obviously criticize New Year's resolutions because sort of the, the old gym joke is that all the people who you see there crowding the gym and taking up your elliptical machine on the squat rack in January are going to soon be gone come February because they're going to quit their habits. Now, there's obviously a truth to that, but I also uh, think that's not um, a good reason for why you should not set New Year's resolutions. You should, you just need to have a proper system in place. So the main issue that I find when working with people is they focus so much on goal setting rather than goal iteration. It's very easy to set goals in terms of I want to lose 20 pounds in 2022. Uh, that's the easy part. The question is, okay, what is your process for doing so and how are you going to get back on the wagon when you fail? So that's the iteration part is you need to have a system in place for it to continually iterate and improve the way that you're approaching things because you will fail probably multiple times. In fact, the average smoker takes about eight attempts to quit. And whenever I work with someone, a patient who's working on, let's say, quitting smoking, uh, I tell them that up front because if you don't, people get discouraged because the first or second time they fail, they're like, oh, I can't do this. This isn't for me etc. And then they give up and permanently versus if you tell people, yeah, you're probably going to relapse about eight times. It's totally normal. It's par for the course. We're going to anticipate it. We're not going to get discouraged when it happens. We're going to come up with a plan when it does. And this is how you're going to deal with it. People are much more likely to, you know, essentially persevere their way through, uh, you know, the ups and downs that are natural and continue on and successfully achieve their goals. So uh, given all that, uh, I actually wanted to make this a little bit more of a conversation rather than a podcast this time around. So we're going to do a little experiment and invite people up to the audience. So if you have any New Year's resolutions that even if you haven't fully formed them, you're just kind of thinking about them, I'd love for anyone to come up to the audience, uh, share kind of what you're thinking about working on. And I'm happy to actually help you think through it, coach you through it, 
um, as I would with anyone in my private practice, uh, etc. So if you uh, are willing to be a brave volunteer, we actually do this every single week. Um, happy to help anyone through it. So feel free to raise your hand. Uh, if you're over on Clubhouse, I'll invite you up to the audience and happy to talk through resolutions. Same thing if you're on Discord, or if you want to type in the questions on YouTube, uh, I can have Victor read them out loud. No brave volunteers? I know some of you are thinking about New Year's resolutions. All right, Anthony, why don't you come on up? Hey there, hey, Dr. Kim. Hey there, how are you doing? Good, good. Um, so I guess what my New Year's kind of goal is uh, to uh, get a little bit uh, more in shape. I work out now uh-huh. and I'm looking to get a personal uh, personal trainer of some kind. Um, but kind of looking at what things should I consider when doing that versus choosing a program versus I guess just overall guidance and going down that path. Yeah, it's a great goal and a very common one. A lot of people obviously have the resolution to want to get into better shape. So why don't we just start from the beginning? Like, tell me, tell me what you're doing now. What did you do in 2021 when it came to fitness? Um, with COVID, I uh, kind of got my own uh, uh, garage gym. Awesome. And I've just been uh, a minute right now, a little short breath actually. Um, <laughs> I uh, just got a program online. It's just like this built with science type, science based type. Uh, um, you know, a basic program. So I've been doing that, uh, lifting, you know, barbell squats, uh, uh, dumbbells, um, a little bit of cardio, um, watching my diet though. Don't have a specific type of diet, just, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of just more real foods. Right. Um, so that's where I'm at now. Um, you know, I'm okay on, uh, kind of physique, but I'd like to get, you know, size, feel healthier, stronger, you know, just kind of focus on that for the next year. Awesome. Uh, how, how do you feel like your your current routine served you um, in 2021? Like, what, what were the positive benefits of it? And where do you think that it fell short for you? Um, I think it gave me a good foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I had done, uh, like, lifting stuff in the past, but just kind of learned through friends. This one gave me kind of an organized uh, program. Um, so it gave me structure. That was really good. Yeah. Uh, but... It's also on the basic side, um, so that's kind of where its limitations were, um, and it's it's not really personalized to me uh, that much. Mm-hmm. So that's another kind of downfall. Yeah, it makes sense. So it sounds like you kind of like got a, sort of like a beginner to intermediate template, used it to kind of get to where you're at, but you're trying to get to the next level. So how do you know um, with this, you know, this new setup that you're going to do in 22, how, how do you consider yourself, what would be, what would success look like? How do you know you achieved your resolution? Um, let's see. I guess a lot of it's going to be um, just uh, like physical, like physique based. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's something I've always kind of wanted to kind of do more of. Um, and, um, and feeling more like active and athletic overall. So not just, um, you know, just weightlifting, but just kind of, I guess, just kind of athletic or functional movement type stuff in general. Just feeling strong, I guess, in your body. Yeah. That makes- but I was going to say, how do you know you, you feel like strong? Is it just a subjective sense? Is it uh, something we can measure? Because you, you've obviously gotten stronger on some certain lifts. Um, I guess, I think the times that I've been in the gym more, um, 
and actually been stronger. Um, even when I'm not in the gym, I feel more like physically grounded. Like mm-hmm. I think I just feel it's kind of funny, but just heavier, just walking around with a little bit more like groundedness, strength. Um, kind of like t- can feel my body as I walk, um, and I've liked that you know that feeling in the past. Mm-hmm. So what I'm going for. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I think there's two things. There's sort of like the inputs and the outputs, right? So generally, it's always better to have what are called SMART goals. You may have heard of this, this acronym before. Um, goals that are, um, you know, specific, measurable, attainable, uh, time-based, etc. Um, and so the more specific that you can make your goals, the the better. So, I, I you know, out of what you said, I kind of heard two, two specific things. Is one... You want to be able to obviously improve your physique or your aesthetic, which I think is obviously like a totally valid goal. By the way, people poo-poo on like having aesthetic uh, goals as it's somehow like, um, I don't know, vain or, or not valid. I, I actually totally disagree. I helped um, create the Omada Health Program, which at this point has helped 500,000 people lose 5 million pounds. And I can't tell you how many people's goals were... Um, either aesthetically oriented or aesthetically oriented in a way that did have maybe some ancillary benefits, right? Like a lot of people would say, for instance, I want to fit in, I don't know, my high school prom drafts, or I want to fit in these these old jeans and my favorite pair of jeans like I used to. And you're like, well, I, you could argue that's superficial. But on the other hand, like there's actually clear data showing, for instance, that waist circumference is a better proxy for you know, um, long-term health outcomes than even your weight is. So it's actually not, it's not a bad thing. And if it takes, you know, looking good in jeans to, uh, you know, get you motivated, I have, I have zero issue with it. Obviously it's as long as it's done in a way that's not sort of body dysmorphic. So on that grounds, how do we make sure that we measure that? So like, how do you know, you know, your physique is getting better? Are you using sort of a mirror test? Is there, is there something uh, more objective that we can do? in terms of you wanting to gain a couple pounds, et cetera? Um, I mean, mirror tests, honestly, probably the, 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 the day-to-day. Um, I guess definition as well as size. Um, you know, it'd be nice to put on like 10, 15 pounds of muscle. Um, and um, yeah, just definition in my clothes. Um, and How long have you I been lifting? I don't have any specific weight, like, like can lift can squat this much or that much because I think that specific number doesn't matter as much to me. It's more either like how I look or how I have feel. Yeah, that makes sense. How long have you been lifting weights? Um, on and off, honestly, like 12 years, um, but never really consistently, never really like, uh, other than in college, that's the only time I was consistent because I had the whole, you know, my uh, peers all go to the gym at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd say kind of consistently for the last year, year and a half. Okay, that makes sense. Well, if you've been lifting on and off, let's say for for ten years, you're you're not a beginner, right? Uh, you know, like there's something called sort of like newbie gains, which is not the clinical term for it. But um, it is possible for people who've never lifted before, like they're literally like weightlifting virgins, to put on about ten to fifteen pounds of muscle within the first year. But that's essentially, I actually. Um, make an interesting argument that it's, it's, they're actually not putting on 10 to 15 pounds of muscle. They're essentially like wasted away because from disuse and they're actually regaining the muscle they would have had if they had, you know, been as physically active as their father or grandfather was, right? There's a lot of like buff farmers out there that have never picked up a weight, but just from bailing hay yeah. and, you know, farming, they, their, their muscles essentially grow to what they should be. You know what I mean? Now, obviously they can still continue to gain weight if they hit the gym. 
but really the 10 10 pounds i would argue is you're you're probably just putting muscle on that should have been there in the first place and then you maybe gain another five from actual lifting um so the tough thing is if you're more of an intermediate lifter which is what i would argue you are because you've been lifting a for like 10 to 12 years so you put probably put on a little bit of strength and muscle over that time and then in the last year to year and a half it sounds like you've been more seriously lifting so that kind of puts you more in the intermediate stage uh kind of category versus like let's say someone who's advanced they've been consistently lifting for 10 to 15 years um so realistically you're not going to gain 10 to 15 pounds uh in the next year uh, maybe over the next like five to ten years i would say but I think it's really important to be realistic about what's possible. Otherwise, as I was saying at the beginning of the show, it's very easy to get um, discouraged. There is sort of um, guidance uh, in terms of what is realistic for um, you know muscle gain um, in the course, depending on um, your your kind of fitness level. Um, you know what I would say. Um, and I think there's, there's some good resources that are out there. I would say for, um, and it's the same thing for, for realistic sort of weight loss. So for instance, in a, in a MADA's program, you know, we generally tell people like one to two pounds of, um, you know, weight, uh, loss per, I believe it was per week, um, is realistic. And these are folks who are starting heavier. I would say for like an intermediate male uh, weightlifter, um, between sort of 0.5 to 0.75% of your body weight, wherever you're starting at now per month is about like the max of about a muscle that you could gain. Now, say you're an average sort of weight male, that's sort of, um, you know, at max like 0.75 to 1.25 pounds a month. So let's just say to, for simplicity's sake, that's about one pound per month that would obviously over the course of a year be 12 pounds i would say like that's like absolute ideal uh like like you're super super consistent everything is dialed in you're doing a ton of volume etc like realistically i would say for most people who are like um intermediate lifters maybe closer on the order of like putting on five pounds i would say is like a realistic amount in a year about three or four pounds would be you know muscle and the other one to two pounds would be some combination of water and fat but if you're stepping on the scale uh you know uh, the, basically a good goal would be that you gain about five pounds from jan 1 to december 31st 2022 and when you look in the mirror you're not looking fatter essentially right you're, you're maintaining the amount of definition that you have now if you want to be a little bit more precise about these sorts of measurements. Um, I'm actually a fan, and I've talked about this in previous shows, of um, Amazon Halo. So Amazon actually has a new fitness tracker called the Halo. The tracker itself is not that great, but the app is actually pretty good because it takes basically a 3D scan of your body. You just take four pictures, front, back, and both sides. And um, it actually renders essentially a 3D composite of your body uh, using computer vision. And the accuracy of it is actually very good. So they've done comparative studies by Pennington Biomedical Research, um, and it compares very favorably to the gold standard, which is a DEXA scan. So the accuracy of analyzing your body fat is actually within 2%, which is basically way better than any of these um, body fat scales that you can buy um, 
that use uh, bioelectrical impedance. They're not very accurate at all. Yeah, they're on sale right now. You can get, I think you can pick one up for like 50 bucks on Amazon, uh, which is the Amazon Halo. There's two different versions. There's one that doesn't have a screen. I'm actually wearing the one right now that has the, uh, the OLED screen. Um, but like I said, the app actually does a very accurate job of measuring your body fat. Um, you just have, you have to have a scale. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is, but you put in your weight, you take the four pictures and it analyzes your body fat. Like I said, plus or minus 2% in terms of its accuracy. So, um, the utility of that obviously is, uh, you know, as you're gaining weight, you obviously want to be making sure that you're gaining muscle, not body fat. And so, um, like I know your point is around, you know, how I feel is more important. And I agree with that. And I think you should keep that as a goal. But in terms of, uh, you know, ensuring that you're making progress, obviously any goal that's measurable, quantifiable is just more likely to be successful. And also it's more encouraging for you when you can see that you're making incremental progress, right? Because if you see that you're maintaining your body fat, maybe even losing some body fat on a week to week basis, same thing if you notice that on at least a month to month basis, you're putting on a tiny amount of muscle, it's very encouraging. While realistically, looking in the mirror, you're not gonna notice any difference, uh, you know, uh, until maybe the end of the year, right? If I'm saying realistically, you're gonna gain about three to five pounds of muscle um, on a week to week or month to month basis, it's actually not vis visibly noticeable at all. Now, you might notice a difference if you take a before and after picture on Jan 1 versus December 31st, and you'll be like, oh, I can see that like three to five pounds on, on it. But on a day-to-day -day basis, like I said, you're not gonna see it and it's not gonna be um, uh, reinforcing or encouraging. So the, the best thing I, I think is to actually do use the numbers, even though it's maybe not the you know be all and end all for you. Um, I would encourage you to actually use numbers just as more of a psychological motivating force in the sense that, you know, if you notice like small incremental gains on a week or realistically more monthly basis, it'll encourage you to keep it up, keep going and, and making sure that you're, you know, doing it at a, a high level. Um, and then the same thing I, I, uh, on the strength side, I actually do think it's useful, whatever program that you choose, that you use some sort of quanti quantitative marker, right? So maybe it's something as simple as like how many pull-ups you can do today versus the end of the year and seeing if you can improve your max, the amount, max amount of pull-ups you can do in one set. That's obviously like a random, you know, I just randomly picked that. But I do think it's very encouraging if you can see like every month, can I, can I break a new PR? And pull-ups are nice, it's relatively safe uh, exercise to do as opposed to like a max bench press where, you know, at risk of shoulder injury or other things is higher. Um, but I would also pick essentially a strength goal, knowing that it's a proxy for your ultimate goal, right? Which as you said, you know, I just want to feel confident and strong when I'm walking around. Well, that's great. That can be your kind of final outcome. But it's hard to tell, like I said, on a, uh, you know, intermediate or regular basis, if that's actually, you're making progress towards that. So I would say pick, pick one exercise, like pull-ups for instance, uh, use that as a proxy for sort of feeling strong um, and do a little test, whether it's the you know end of every week, every month, see how many max pull-ups you can do and see track your progress, basically January, February, March, et cetera, uh, and see if, you see if you're making regular progress. Because my hypothesis is if you start noticing some quantitative changes, like you're uh, you know, losing some body fat, you're putting on some muscle every month, same thing, you're getting stronger, you're doing more pull-ups uh, every single month, that will translate into how you look in the mirror 
and that will translate into how you feel as well. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then in terms of finding a program or a trainer, what are you thinking there? Um, I mean, I have, I've never had one before, so I don't know if it's like uh, just you know, Google online and, and try to figure out what kind of uh, – how people mark themselves, what they like promise, uh, you know, I guess what their, their past results have been with other people. And it's kind of hard to tell. I don't really know what the, the good markers for finding a good trainer would be. Yeah, I think um, I'm not an expert on, on personal trainers, but I can just tell you just in terms of uh, other allied health fields, what's usually helpful. I, I do think some level of certification is generally important just because it shows that, um, you know, they, they actually got some level of training and they know, um, you know, what they're talking about. There is a bunch of certifications um, that are out there in terms of like, personal training, strength training. Um, so I would make sure that the person is like properly certified. Um, some people make an argument, it doesn't really make a difference, but I, I, I generally think it's almost like a, a more of a proxy for, um, you know, someone who wants to be legit will go out of their way and they'll get the certifications that they need, uh, you know, to be legit. And I think the better people generally are. There's different... Um, Associations, uh, the one that I know is um, called NSCA. It's the National Strength and Conditioning Association. They have their own certification. I'm sure there's some other, um, you know, agencies that are out there that provide it, but they're, they're probably the most famous, at least the one that I know, National Strength and Conditioning Association. So it's a good proxy. There may be some other ones that I don't know of, um, but that's probably the most famous one. And so that's, a, that's like a, you know, Look, are there probably trainers that are out there that don't have a certification that's good? Sure, but you're just kind of taking a gamble. And they could be good, they could be not good. Uh, I always say the correlation is essentially higher when you work with someone who's you know licensed or certified in some um, legitimate way. So that's number one. Uh, you know, Make sure that they have at least some semblance of training or qualification. Uh, number two, I would say, is do they walk the talk? I really hate to be too superficial about it, but... I always just think, uh, you know, uh, you know, as someone who kind of works in psychology and medicine, it's it's weird the amount of hypocrisy um, in terms of clinicians. I, I feel like it's very strange to have a doctor who's overweight or obese and giving you, you know, lifestyle counseling or weight counseling if they're not able to practice what they preach themselves. So, I mean, yeah, as superficial as it is, find someone who's fit uh, because if they can't apply it to their own lives, I don't think they honestly have any business uh, applying it to yours. Now, on the other hand, I also think that incentivizes a lot of personal trainers to be very fit by using a bunch of anabolic steroids to get them fitter than, quite frankly, you will ever be um, by cheating, essentially. Um, I don't have necessarily a problem with anabolic steroid use, um, or, or at least like uh, medically supervised hormone optimization, I should say. I, I do have a problem with illegal drug use. Um, but uh, the, the, the danger, of course, is that you know, they're all jacked and they're promising results that, quite frankly, are not really attainable. Uh, by ordinary people. So uh, they don't need to be yoked out of their mind. <laughs> they just need to be not overweight and look like they're in decent shape. That's that's all I would say. And the third thing is, um, yeah, the best thing is, you know, if you can find people through referral, especially I would argue like sort of these sorts of professions, uh, personal training, etc. Um, if you can talk to people who've been their current or former clients, um, that would be best. Now, obviously, if you ask them, they're going to give you the clients that are very happy. But if they work through a gym um, or work, because often they do, a lot of folks are essentially affiliated with certain gyms 
And then, you know, you ask the gym rather than them directly be like, hey, are there like, can you give me the names of like, I don't know, three to five people that they've worked with in the past uh, that, that you have, you know, that you know versus that they know, um, et cetera. Uh, it's always, it's always great. Or the thing you can do is just ask around, you know, your friends or other folks in the fitness community. Um, like I'll actually put out a message on our discord after this and I'll ask folks for referrals for a personal trainer. Do you want someone in person or do you want someone virtual? Uh, I think in person would really be best. Yeah. And what city are you in? Uh, Los Angeles. Okay. You're in LA. So yeah, we're in, in LA as well. Yeah. I'll put a message out on discord. Um, I'm sure there's some folks who are local who, We'll know some good personal trainers, um, and then yeah, that's that's honestly the best way is uh you know word of mouth personal referrals, especially if p- people who have worked with them before. It's the same thing with my private practice. I don't even have a website. I don't advertise. Um, I get basically all of my clients from current or former clients who are very happy with having worked with me, and they're like, hey, I have another CEO that would like you know coaching or uh, psychological therapy, and that's how I get my clients. And quite frankly, in any profession, I don't care if you're a psychologist, physician, personal trainer, um, the people who are good are busy and they're booked. Like I have a wait list essentially. Because uh, when you're good, people want to come see you and your former clients will you know, refer you essentially without asking. Uh, people who are have a lot of availability are either new and they haven't built up their business or quite frankly, they're not very good. So that's actually the weird catch-22 of all of these sort of... Uh, health or helping professions, I should say, is often the best people are always booked. Um, so that makes it a little bit hard, but if you can, you can catch people who, I don't know, have like one or two slots left, uh, or maybe you have to wait a little bit to work with them, they're often much, much better. Um, I hate to say that, but it's, but it's true in sort of my personal experience. Gotcha, gotcha. Those are all great points. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, and yeah, I'll follow up with you if, you if you join our Discord. It's, our Discord is easy to find. It's discord.maximustribe.com. You can join it for free. It's our kind of online men's health community. Um, but if you if you join our coaching channel, or there's actually a there's a weekly radio show channel. It's called Dr. Cam-Radio Show, and you can follow up there. Actually, I, I do know someone who's out of Venice who's a personal trainer um, that I trained with one time, and I thought he was very knowledgeable. Um, so I'll, I'll share his name, uh, with you because since you're local to LA and then I'll ask other folks as well, if they have any recommendations as well. Awesome. appreciate that a lot. Thank you. Absolutely. Happy to help. All right. Any other folks who are thinking about new year's resolutions, even if you haven't fully formed them and, and want to talk, talk through it, let me know. Yeah. You want to ask, um, ask that question, Victor. We had a question on YouTube about thoughts on vegan meat. Is it good to replace that for real meat? Oh boy, I hope this is a serious question, not a troll question. <laughs> um, I'm very public on Twitter about how I feel about um, vegan or fake meat. Um, I think it's very unfortunate that there's an incredible amount of p- propaganda that has permeated the public into thinking that meat is bad for you and that a healthier alternative are these so-called meat replacements. Um, there's zero scientific, compelling, I would say, scientific evidence that that's true. In fact, it's quite the opposite. If you look at numerous sources of information, the the most important of which I would actually argue are ancestral diets, which is if you don't know what to eat or there's a debate about what to eat, my argument is we should just eat essentially what we've eaten for tens of thousands of years that have ensured the survival and re- reproduction of our species. Uh, and fortunately, um, 
researchers such as Lauren Cordain have actually done extensive published analysis of what ancestral diets look like, especially looking at essentially hunter-gatherers that still continue to this day eating their ancestral diet. So as opposed to Americans who have radically altered their diet in the last 50 to 100 years, meaning you don't eat what your, your uh, parents or grandparents ate these days, but hunter-gatherers have essentially been eating the same thing for the last 10,000 years because they still you know, live in that sort of nomadic uh, lifestyle. The overwhelming majority of them eat an animal-based diet. Uh, I think, I can't remember the exact percentage, but uh, it is the preponderance of peoples um, eat primarily most of their calories from meat. So one, that's pretty compelling sort of evidence that essentially meat is the universal human diet. Now we're not eating exclusively meat. There's no there's no civilizations that eat 100% carnivore, uh, including the Inuits, even though they're eating, I don't know, 90 plus percent at that point, because there's obviously not a lot of foliage or greenery uh, up in the Arctic circle where they live. I still think they go out of their way to eat like seaweed, moss, lichens, and other things in order to supplement an essentially very meat heavy diet of eating seal, whale, etc. cetera, um, that are up there. Um, and so, and conversely, there are zero vegan civilizations that are out there, which is also compelling evidence that vegan diet is, is not natural in any form. In fact, there are no vegan diets because it's nutritionally deficient. You will, uh, almost assuredly have a deficiency of vitamin B12 amongst other things. If you have a vegan diet, there are vegetarian civilizations, obviously like a, a significant proportion of the Hindu population in India does eat a vegetarian diet but they're still often eating um, you know, other animal-based products um, such as like dairy, essentially, um, yogurt, lassi, uh, that kind of thing, which can significantly bolster essentially um, their nutritional status and prevent the deficiencies of vegan diets. So the answer is um, we should not be eating 100% meat. We should not be eating 100% plants. We are omnivores. We should be probably eating both. However, the majority of the food that we eat should be meat. Um, in fact, if you look at um, the studies of Native American diets um, that were analyzed, I believe in the 1850s, 85% of their calories came from animal-based foods and only 15% actually came from plant-based foods. So it's pretty animal-based diet in that they were essentially buffalo hunters, right? And in fact, um, when uh, Americans were trying to decimate, quite frankly, um, Native Americans, the way that they went after them was by trying to uh, eradicate their food source, which was they killed all the buffaloes because they knew that uh, that's essentially what they survived off of. But they would eat it nose to tail, meaning they're not just eating the muscle meat, but they're eating the offal or the organs, um, the heart, liver, kidney, pancreas, uh, intestines, tripe, etc., which are uh, very nutritionally rich. In fact, I always say liver is essentially nature's multivitamin. It's very high in multi, uh, vitamins, including vitamin A. Um, it's not necessarily the most tasty thing if you haven't grown up eating it. Um, although that's a relatively new change as well. Americans, up until I would argue about 50 years ago, you could get liver in restaurants regularly. In fact, most families would cook liver about once a week um, because I think it was almost just like folk knowledge that um, eating liver once a week is very nutritious and gives you a lot of vitamins. I don't know if they knew the science behind it, but they just knew it was sort of like a tradition and it was good for you. Um, unfortunately, that's fallen out of favor. And ironically, the only place you can get offal 
is not American supermarkets, it's ethnic supermarkets. You gotta go to like a Mexican market or a halal market in order to get this stuff. Um, and and a, probably an adventurousness in terms of the willingness to try it. But anyway, to answer your question, uh, Beyond Me, Impossible Burger, uh, all this stuff is ultra processed junk. Uh, it uses uh, refined seed oils and a lot of kitchen chemistry in order to make it taste reasonable. And the thing is, it does taste decent. I've tried an Impossible Burger just for shits and giggles just to see what it was like. It doesn't taste bad, but if you look at the ingredient list, it's like 20 plus ingredients, uh, highly processed, full of chemicals, and it is terrible for your health. Um, so I do not recommend it at all. Uh, I, I think there is uh, compelling research that um, eating meat uh, is actually healthy, so you don't need to have any meat substitutes. The main thing I would tell you is uh, cook your own meat is the best way to, can, to ensure that it's healthy because you can obviously pick meat that is of high quality. Uh, I think most people, in fact, should eat leaner cuts of meat um, given sort of the prevalence of obesity. And also, ancestrally, a lot of the game or wild game that people hunted was lean. Buffalo, in fact, is much leaner than the cows that we eat. So when you go buy ground buffalo, if they have that, even Costco carries ground buffalo these days, you'll see that it's typically leaner in terms of its you know muscle to fat proportion than the average sort of beef that you get from a cow. Um, so uh, leaner cuts are probably better. And then the most important thing is don't cook in re refined seed oils. Don't cook in vegetable oils. That's also not traditional. Your grandparents did not cook in canola oil, safflower oil, peanut oil, rice oil, uh, God knows what oil, soy, soybean oil that people are cooking in. Soybean oil, by the way, is actually the most commonly used oil by restaurants as, uh, in terms of the, its consumption and use uh, by far. And that is uh, literally an invention of the last 50 years in which we learned to chemically extract um, these refined seed oils. That's why they're called refined. The traditional way of cooking meat or any sort of things was with fat, animal fat, meaning you cook with lard. Uh, obviously, a lot of Mexican cuisine uses uh, lard uh, in order to cook like and cook their tortillas, for instance. And same thing with tallow. Tallow is beef fat, essentially. Um, uh, another alternative, um, which is commonly used in Indian cuisine, is called ghee, G-H-E-E. -E. It's essentially clarified butter. Uh, if you boil butter, you can actually make it yourself at home and just skim off the milk solids. Uh, it essentially becomes ghee. And the benefit of ghee over butter is it has a higher smoke point. Ghee, you can cook up to 485 degrees without it burning, as opposed to butter, which kind of burns in the 300 degree range. I actually cook with ghee. You can go buy it at Costco, a big two pound tub of it. Uh, it's very healthy uh, and it makes sure that it's um, not adding anything to your meat as opposed to using canola oil or other sort of refined vegetable oils. Um, so that's the best way you can ensure that your meat is healthy. And then the last thing is don't char the hell out of your meat. Um, heavily charred blackened meat uh, may have some carcinogenic uh, chemicals that are can, cooked uh, with it. So there's nothing long, wrong with flame grilling your meat. Uh, it's obviously, that that is very Lindy or traditional, but you don't want to burn the hell out of your meat, uh, I would say. It's not, it's, it's okay to have a little like grill marks, I would say. Don't freak out about a little bit of blackness, but it shouldn't, shouldn't be soot <laughs> all over your meat. That's probably not good for you. So that's the best thing I would say is eat meat, cook it yourself, Cook it using an animal-based fat uh, and make sure that it's a high-quality, probably leaner cut uh, of meat in order to ensure optimal health. On YouTube, we had a comment. Uh, which cooking methods do you recommend for keeping the healthy nutrients found in liver? 
You know, uh, that's a good question. I, I, I think the trick with liver is, is less about maximizing the nutritional um, status of it and honestly more about making it taste decent enough that you're willing to consume it on a regular basis. Um, so I have, I have two tricks for cooking liver. The first trick, and this is kind of an old traditional one, is like find your grandma's recipe or nice recipe online about cooking liver with onions. There's something about onions that just cuts the taste um, of it quite dramatically um, and uh, improves it a lot. Um, that's one. Um, uh, calf liver and other forms of liver, uh, such as chicken liver, is often much more palatable than eating the liver of adult cows which has a much stronger, almost irony taste that a lot of people don't like. So that's the second thing is buy liver that's just essentially more palatable. And then third, uh, I would say you can also um, uh, get uh, liver that's essentially mixed with ground beef. Um, there's, for instance, a place that I used to buy it from in Texas called Slankers. You can Google Slankers meat or Slankers farm. Um, and they have like something called a primal mix in which they mix ground beef, regular muscle meat with liver in two different proportions. I believe they have one that's like 70% meat, 30% liver. That one you can still taste the liver because obviously like a third of it's liver. And then they have one that's like 95-5. 95% meat, only 5% liver. It's, mm, it's You can still taste it a little bit, but it's very mild. It's just kind of like snuck in there essentially. And so you can just make normal burgers with it. And it's a little different tasting, but... It's honestly not that noticeable. I personally don't love the taste of the liver, so I don't like having it by itself. But if it's kind of like mixed into a hamburger patty, um, it's actually quite okay. And then obviously you're putting on a little bit of ketchup, you know, uh, lettuce, tomato, whatever you like on your burger. And then at that point, you don't even really notice it that much. So that's a really good trick. And then the last and final trick is obviously there are some liver preparations that have been used for generations, which is uh, liver pate, liver worst and uh there's a german one which i'm going to totally butcher the name uh braunschweiger uh is uh it's like a smoked sausage that's made from pig liver um uh i think uh it's also called liver worst if you ever heard of that um used in a lot of sort of like germanic uh i think originally germanic countries um obviously people usually put it as a spread um it's kind of hard to eat huge quantities of itself because it's pretty fatty um, but that's another way of sneaking in liver. What was the name of that Texas, uh, uh, slankers? Can I just in on the liver? Yes, please do. Yeah. So liver is the one thing that I pretty much exclusively raw and I'm not sure exactly how I got into that. It was mm. probably just seeing lots of stuff over and over again on Twitter saying, okay, I should have liver. I did carnivory for a while and the entire time I was doing, I never had liver until maybe a year ago. And for some reason, just going at it raw work. And I think it was just sort of that wanting it enough is the key thing and just sort of going for it. Uh Um, There's sort of the the initial response where it's like, this tastes weird. But I think that's just what we've been conditioned to. And that's something that can evolve. And once you sort of go all in, that can sort of flip. And then it starts tasting pretty good. It's This is like this primal experience. You just eat it raw. You can eat it with your hands. Eat it in the sunlight shirtless. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's great. Sounds like liver king. Uh, how do you ensure that like the sanitation of the liver is like, do you buy it from a certain source? I don't. Um, and, you know, some people might feel less comfortable in that with others. 
generally when I've been getting into raw meat, and this was something I was pretty worried about initially, the first time I tried getting into raw meat, what I did was I left all the meat in a freezer for about four or five days. And depending on the temperature of your freeze, that's sort of a deep freeze that ensures you can't have any sort of parasites. Um, and then if, you, if you're a little bit concerned, you could do an extremely light sear on the outside because um, that's really where you're going to have any bacteria. Right. But th- the more I, I did it and I just got comfortable with it, um, the, the risk seems to not be that high, even if it's you know just regular grocery store meat. Um, the other thing is if, you're, if you have a diet that is uh, you know, high in starches, like a typical Western diet, that is going to shift the acidity of the stomach and make it less acidic. So it's more likely than any sort of harmful parasite could get through. And if you're eating a more animal-based diet, that acidity will drop back down. So I check my exact numbers on this, but I, I recall seeing something that said that the natural acidity of the human stomach is actually more acidic than an animal like a lion based on potentially a, a sort of scavenger um, type of activity where we might come across a kill of another animal that's been maybe out in the sun for some time and be feeding off of that. Yeah, it's possible. Um, I, I, I think the, the main issue is honestly with factory farming and like the contamination that happens uh, along along those things. Obviously, like actually raw milk is legal in California. It's not legal in a lot of states. Um, and there's a cold controversy or, you know, around that. Um, you know, is raw milk good for you? It's fine until it's not. That's the problem is like once you have contaminated milk, you can get obviously really sick. Um, and same thing with raw eggs, raw meat, raw liver. It's, it's fine like 99% of the time until the one time it's contaminated and then you get like deathly sick. If not, you know, some oh, people... Yeah, have... that, that happened to me. I'll say the one time I did get pretty sick, it was having a bunch of raw ground beef. And so that's the thing I'm not going to do again. Yeah. So I, I, just as a responsible healthcare clinician, I always tell, you know, people like, you know, I, I don't personally recommend, um, even though I understand the argument about like the... Um, you know, the nutritional benefits of not ruining, you know, the enzymes of things. Uh, well, one, you know, we probably have been cooking our meat for a long time. Interestingly, even chimpanzees, when you offer them raw versus cooked meat, they actually prefer cooked meat, which is interesting because obviously they're not cooking their meat, they eat it raw. But I don't know, there's something about the process that intrinsically makes it taste better. So th- that's kind of an interesting argument in and of itself. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I actually like if you're going to go that far, um, the idea of at least searing the outside. Uh, if it's a steak uh, or a liver, sear the outside of it so that at that point you're probably reduced most of the contamination risk. Um, ground is different to your point. You, you know, you can't sear ground meat because it's all been mixed in there. Uh, so that technique doesn't work with, with ground and I don't recommend people eat raw ground uh, products. Last thing I'll say is... Uh, raw cheese if it's a hard cheese um it's probably safe again not recommended but you know to use at your own caveat mTOR buyer beware um you should not eat raw soft cheese there was actually an incident in new york where some raw cheese maker in brooklyn killed like three people uh from eating raw cheese and so there's the risk of uh like stuff that sits around for months that's raw uh is very high risk and i and it's uh people should just be very cautious about that that's good to know. The, the chimpanzees say that's pretty interesting. I hadn't heard about that. One other thing I'd be really curious to see is, you know, if you have a, a maybe a dog or a, a baby that has enough teeth, 
if you give them maybe not raw but just a very rare piece of meat versus something that's medium rare which one they would choose i think that would be a pretty interesting experiment yeah i'm curious about that with dogs as well there was a there's some great um youtube videos of uh people feeding their dogs obviously meat versus vegetables and it's very clear what dogs prefer and you could actually make an argument that essentially dogs co-evolved with humans um, they essentially were the scavengers of us and that they ate our scraps uh, and it sort of, you know, evolved from wolves, I don't know, around 13,000 years ago. Um, and so they eat essentially a hyper carnivorous diet, even though they've um, a bit, uh, evolved the ability to process starch through the amylase enzyme. Um, but they clearly prefer eating uh, sort of meat. I don't know if they prefer raw versus cooked. That's a, it's an interesting question. I'll have to look that up afterwards. Um, but, uh, but yeah, thank you for sharing, sharing your tips. Uh, I think we have someone on discord who wanted to ask a question. Yeah. It's me. Can you hear me? Yep. I can hear you. Great. Uh, I just signed up. We spoke over Instagram a few days ago yep. yesterday as well. Uh, great show. I mean, uh, I just literally just came on like 10 minutes ago. Awesome. Um, so <clears throat> liver King is interesting. Actually. I just started following him about a month ago. He is obviously like a Viking in terms of, you know, what he does and how he lives. It's unbelievable. Yeah, um, I, I, I have to say, though, this is, is going to be my, my quick liver liver king rant. Uh, I don't usually like to speak ill of anyone, but uh, someone brought him up actually early, earlier today. I just think it's horribly deceiving for people. Liver king is clearly on a huge amount of anabolic steroids and human growth hormone. And that's why he looked like it's it's absolutely clear. Like there's, there's incontrovertible... Uh, you know, and so I, I think it's just, it's just shady that he, he promotes that lifestyle without talking about the incredible amount of drugs that he's using to get that physique. And so it, it completely like negates essentially all everything that he does because he just wouldn't look like that. And it's, it's not that his, his other stuff doesn't potentially have some benefits, but 95% of the way that he looks the way he does is absolutely through drug use has nothing to do with lifestyle. And we know that because there's, he looks like a bodybuilder, right? He, he has a, a physique of, of someone who can only essentially, um, uh, of a competitive bodybuilder who can only be uh, achievable through performance enhancing drugs. And obviously most competitive bodybuilders are not eating raw testicle or whatever shit that he's eating. Um, and nor do you need to, uh, to look like that. You just need to consume a massive amount of calories and have sky high testosterone levels. He has his background is bio, biophysicist, something like that, right? That's his background. I, I don't know what his educational background is. Yeah, he, he's got some PhD in some level, and he's apparently some educated guy. But um, I was going to ask you some some completely different questions. Sure. I just mentioned Liver King just because I heard you speak about him a couple minutes. I, ago. I highly um, I highly doubt he has a PhD, by the way. But I will look this up afterwards. <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna look it up actually once once we're done here. Um, uh, first of all, thanks for clarifying the differences between SARMs and SERMs. It was actually a little bit confusing because it does sound the same, but when you look into it, actually, it does have the last few words are different. Um, that was one one of those things that I obviously looked into yesterday. Um, what interesting to me was, you know, because obviously I I moved from New York to Miami, and in Miami, a lot of people. I would say a lot more people in Miami are on enhancing drug. For sure. Um, so uh, a lot of people offer you, you know, TRT replacement, uh, all these other, you know, water stuff that takes out all the fat and the water and so it makes you more bulk and more lean and more this and more that. Mm -hmm. um, 
for me personally, I mean, when I I had a car accident, so I got I started working out heavily now for the last year and one month. So obviously TRT was very low. When I tested, it was almost very had very very low numbers. Mm-hmm. So now that I was actually prescribed TRT from my doctor, I decided not to do it. But at least at least I did it for a month, and I decided. And when I really looked into it, I saw how many side effects it had. Right. And then I into SARMs, and then you know, obviously, you said, "Hey, SARMs is not necessarily, you know, in the in the in the in the legal areas, in the gray area." Right. So then, I was, then you, you talked about what you had, and then uh, for me, if this is going to be the future, then great, you know, because in the end of the day, right now. There's so much out there on the internet. It's so confusing about what to get into and what not. And I guess if you can, you know, educate the masses on it, that'd be great. That's how I see it. Yeah. By the way, I did look up. Uh, this is really interesting. So Liver King, uh, I think his real name is uh, Brian Johnson. Um, he, by the way, he has a bachelor's in uh, applied science from Texas Tech um, in biochem. But yes, not not a graduate degree. No, but the, the interesting thing is he's the owner of Ancestral Supplements, which is a supplement line that I'm very familiar with. They sell organ meats like we were talking about. So they have like liver capsules, for instance, um, which may not be bad products. Um, and I think I've I think I've even tried some of their products like many years ago. Um, the the so, you know, the, the, the issue that I have is like, you know, when someone is an owner of a company and I'm an owner of a company, right? So obviously I'm biased as well in terms of our stuff. But I think the difference is you look at his physique and you think, oh, if I take ancestral supplements or ancestral products, uh, I'll look like him. And the answer is clearly not. You have to take a ton of drugs. Uh, that's that's the problem that I have is he's not disclosing his drug use. The difference is like, compared to like Maximus, one, I'm on the Maximus King protocol. I'm like public about that. Uh, and so I, I'm not going to sell anything I wouldn't take myself. And then second, you don't need to take my word for it. There's zero research on ancestral supplements, right? Like you have no idea if, first of all, is what that's on the label actually in the bottle. You don't know that with a supplement manufacturer, right? Because there's no FDA oversight essentially of supplements. People, quite frankly, underdose and make up anything. In fact, when they've done like consumer reports, analysis of supplements, like even a vitamin D, they're, they're wildly like over or underdosed. So that's the, that's the first thing. The other thing is, as I've sent you, there's a ton of research on what we do that we did not publish that was gone through clinical trials. Um, and so, you know, with uh, pharmaceutical drugs, they, there's a confidence that A, it's pure, and then B, that what they're doing is actually, it's actually effective, essentially. So it's not, like I said, I'm not, I'm not here to put down other brands, but I, I do think it's important to understand there's a, there's a world of difference between, you know, an influencer shilling, uh, you know, a supplement versus a licensed board certified physician prescribing a pharmaceutical drug, uh, analyzing your lab tests and, you know, optimizing you to, uh, you know, a good degree. Like one is, I don't know what it is, snake oil, uh, I would say. And the other is like medicine essentially that's, that's being practiced. So it's a different caliber. Doctor, um, first of all, uh, the, the essence between, you know, what Liver King does, which I heard, it does have third-party testing, right? So I don't know if that makes any difference in terms of supplemental testing, because in Europe, supplement testing is completely different yeah. than it is here in America, and has much more relations to them than here, um, which is a lot more safer out there. Uh, I'm not saying that people don't use anabolics and testosterone and all that stuff. They do, 
but it's a lot more. It's harder than in Germany yeah. where I grew up uh, to get bad supplements because it's just more regulated by the government. Now, in terms of um, you being a doctor and obviously knowing what you're prescribing and like a hand, and it's like one person helps the other person out and it kind of like watches and monitors the progress. Um, there is obviously a few people that I found online recently, like a guy like Dr. Bosch, right, who was famous for, you know, with uh, A-Rock and all that stuff. Um, and obviously they have moved on from TRT to like peptides and different other, you know, things that they prescribe their, you know, athletes to enhance their... Um, physique or their output and getting stronger and so on what do you think about that you know you know that that form of kind of going around trt moving on to different things with peptides and whatever they prescribe yeah i mean i, I think you're getting into uncharted territory right i think the first rule of um actual medicine is do no harm right and whenever you start getting to things like sarms none of which have been fda approved to date most of which i've actually failed clinical trials due to safety issues. That's the other thing that people don't recognize. Like you're literally taking a illegal gray market substance that has no third party validation, despite the COAs that people are putting up. It's not actually like legit. Um, so A, you don't know what you're getting. 100% it's guaranteed it's manufactured in China, uh, probably illicitly. Um, and then uh, third, there's no long-term study of any of these substances in terms of what are the long-term effects, right? Now, why would someone essentially guinea pig uh, an, a completely novel drug on themselves? I would argue the only time you do that is one, you're desperate. Let's say you have a rare medical condition, you've tried all the conventional medical options, and uh, you know you, this is the last treatment of last resort. And you unfortunately see this with cancer patients a lot. They've kind of run out of options sometimes and they'll go down to Mexico and get some crazy alternative treatment. And I don't know, I think there's a really serious ethical question, uh, questions around that because, you know, of course, like you want to give people hope, but you also don't want to like bleed people's bank accounts dry and give them false hope either. So one, unless you're in that situation, the other is quite frankly, Olympic athletes who are taking stuff that is not regulated because uh, they're evading essentially WADA testing requirements. Now, if you're a professional athlete and you have millions of dollars on the line, now let's put the ethics of that aside, which I think are still important. Uh, that's a different category where you're like, look, I'm making a living off of this and I need to have a physique. Same thing with Liver King. He's making a liver, uh, like I would argue any fitness influencer that you see on Instagram is 100% on performance enhancing drugs because it's in their uh, financial bottom line too, right? They want to look jacked in order to promote their products. Even if it's not the products, like I said, that's it's 100%. Whether or not his liver supplements are pure or not is, is not the point. The point is that he doesn't look like that because of liver supplements. He looks like that because of anabolic steroids and growth hormone. Um, and we know that because like he has conditions like palombism, which is like he has the HGH gut, uh, which is a distinctive hallmark essentially of growth hormone use. Funny, yeah. Funny you say that. Really funny you say that because only people who, I mean, I was an athlete my entire life and before I became an entrepreneur and uh, I moved on into the business side of it. I clearly can tell he's on supplements. I can clearly tell he's on something. The veins even, right? Yeah. The veins, yeah, you just don't look like that. Yeah, any, anyone who's been like a personal trainer or around the fitness industry, you, you know what's natural or not. I talk about this on Twitter. Like for instance, like uh, Jeff Bezos, 
almost assuredly is on uh, TRT or probably HGH because he has hallmark things. Like, for instance, you have more androgen re receptors in your trapezoids and your deltoids. And so you get a disproportionate growth in your traps and your shoulders uh, when you take anabolics, essentially. You overdevelop. This is why, like, if you ever watch, like, WWF or WWE, those professional wrestlers like The Rock, uh, those guys, they all have, like, huge traps. And they, well, I'm sure they train it on purpose, but nobody nobody looks like that. It's it's an overdevelopment that happens from steroid use, essentially. Um, and same thing, the, the level of vascularity, as you point out, it's just not natural, essentially. It's, it's anyone who's, like, in the industry knows what's real and what's not. And what's attainable and what's not. That's why I really appreciated Anthony's, you know, question earlier, who was talking about, I want to gain 10 to 15 pounds of muscle. And I was like, at the stage that you're at an intermediate, absolutely not attainable without performance enhancing drugs. Right. Um, so you have to be just sort of realistic about it. And like I said, I, I don't have an issue around performance enhancing drugs. Um, uh, arguably Maximus offers a performance enhancing drug. You're obviously just doing it under doctor super supervision in a safe way. The, the, the issue that I have is just being honest about it. Like I don't have a problem and there are influencers that are out there, Derek from More Plates, More Dates, Russo Lifts, that are very open about their drug use. And I, I don't have a problem with that because then at least you're being honest with your audience and saying, look, this is what I use. This is how I achieve this physique. You're not going to get it without doing this. That's up to you. That's fine because then you're being honest about what you're doing. So I think just honesty and authenticity are really important to me and that you shouldn't deceive and I see this a lot, very like young, young guys, 18 to 21, and they're like, I don't have the physique of this guy that I follow on Instagram. Should I be on drugs? And I was like, you're not even grown yet. You know, like guys don't even finish their physical maturation development. So they're about 21, 22 even sometimes. Um, you obviously shouldn't take anything uh, before you're, 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 you're done growing for the most part. Uh, anything anabolic, certainly. Um, uh, in terms of uh, steroid use or anything like that. I saw Jeff Bezos today. He's in St. Bart's, and he does have all the science of him using drugs. Yeah. Uh, secondly, um, in terms of, um, you know, for me at least, I'm 35 now, right? Mm -hmm. So my peak is obviously gone in terms of, like, I don't know, reaching all, you know, the, the athlete level that I was when I was in my early 20s. Uh, however, you know, for the first time in my life, I gained weight. So I'm 220 pounds now, 5'9". Mm -hmm. I work out five times a week. I am very heavy on the muscle side of it, of course. Right. But I am also at 21 to 24% on body fat. Right. So I'm trying to cut down. My main goal is cutting down to about 10, 12, 14% body fat right. and then maintain my muscle uh, level that I have. Um, I think most people confuse when they get, when they, especially when they're 18, 19, 20, they confuse these guys who are like jacked, uh, you know, for all the muscle that they have with, with uh, you know, eat a low percentage fat because they look huge. They might not be, you know what I mean? Some people can just look very big just because their, their body fat percentage is very low. Right. And some people will just, you know, just have a lot of muscle and don't actually look that big because their body fat percentage is higher. So my main goal now, especially why I signed up for this was because I kind of felt like, okay, I have somebody monitoring my progress. Right. And then at the same time, seeing how my testosterone level uh, rises. Also, my biggest point was also DHT which, you know, I didn't want to have any side effects on that end because right. I am technically pres uh, prescribed finasteride, right. which I'm not because I didn't want to have the side effect for it. Uh, but, you know, reading what, what it does or like the actual drug uh, blocks estrogen, which right. kind of like 
pushes DHT from what I've read online or from your this book that you send out. Um, so it, I'm kind of worried a little bit, but also like, you know, there's obviously certain things I can do, for example, for the hair that prohibits, they had to get uh, like an estrogen, um, like a DHT androgen blocker, right? So it doesn't like, that DHT doesn't go into the follicle, can't, can't, uh, can't connect, so to say. And then, and you don't lose your hair. Something yeah. Like so, that. just to clarify the mechanism, right? So, what we prescribe at Maximus are SERMs, the selective estrogen receptor modulators. As you pointed out, essentially, it blocks estrogen. Um, it's an estrogen receptor antagonist. That's sort of the scientific term. But the simple way of describing it is, um, you know, uh, at the level of the pituitary inside your brain, it blocks estrogen, and when the brain senses that, it stimulates the production of gonadotropin releasing hormone. Um, in the hypothalamus, which releases two other hormones, luteinizing hormone, um, which stimulates the testes to produce testosterone, and another hormone called follicle-stimulating hormone, or FSH, which stimulates uh, sperm production and is responsible for our fertility. So it's essentially kind of a hack, if you will, right? It essentially tricks your brain into thinking, oh, my estrogen levels are low, and since estrogen is derived from testosterone, your brain's like, I got to make more testosterone. So the nice thing, though, is it... it, it um, essentially produces that whole cascade that I talked about. Gonadotropin-releasing hormone, LH, FSH, and testosterone. So you're producing all of your own hormones, and you're producing all of them, right? As opposed to TRT, which when you replace the synthetic testosterone from outside of your body, you actually shut down gonadotropin-releasing uh, hormone, GNRH. You shut down LH. You shut down FSH. That's why your testes shrink. That's why your balls uh, shrink. Uh, and you become infertile. So it has a completely opposite mechanism. Now, uh, just as testosterone turns into estradiol, uh, testosterone does turn into DHT as well. Um, and so there are things that block that. You pointed out one of them, finasteride, is a as a five AR um, blocker that essentially blocks the, yeah the conversion of testosterone to DHT. But one of the interesting things is the conversion from testosterone to DHT is not as high. Uh, on enclomiphene as it is on TRT, right? So the ratio is really important of T to E or T to DHT. And it typically doesn't increase. It, it increases proportionally, meaning like testosterone and estradiol go up one-to-one -one, typically or pretty close to one-to-one. -one. And then same thing, um, testosterone, the DHT may increase, but it's increasing proportional to testosterone. So uh, as a result, it's much more hair-friendly, prostate-friendly than essentially TRT. And we haven't really had any complaints around sort of, um, you know, hair or prostate issues. So I would argue it's like the safest, relatively speaking, way of increasing testosterone uh, when it comes to hair or prostate what about concerns. The, uh, coming off the drugs from it, does the testosterone level stay constant or does it drop significantly? There's no drug that will magically increase your testosterone. You stop taking it, it'll magically continue forever. That's like a, that's a... That's a fantasy. Um, as long as you continue to take it, it will stay high. And then when you stop taking it, it'll just go back down to the levels essentially that you had when you started with, right? So if you started at 500 and then you went up to 1,000, let's say it doubles your levels, you'll just go right back down to 500. On TRT, however, let's say you started at 500, you went up to 1,000. If you stop taking it, you're going to go down to 100, right? It actually causes suppression because you've replaced your own production with the external production. That's the main difference is testosterone, you can't really come off of it. You become dependent on it, especially the longer that you take it and the more that your testes literally atrophy uh, for the rest of your life. With enclomiphene, you just kind of go back to essentially 
wherever you were. So that's the nice thing. You can discontinue it without a lot of problems. Uh, if you wanted to take a break, theoretically, sometime in the future, there's no reason to. But if you wanted to, for whatever reason, you can. Um, and you're just going to go back to essentially where you were. And you can obviously restart at any time. So it's much... Um, better user experience, I would say, in the sense of that you can kind of start and stop if you need to. Uh, and you're not concerned that you're you're doing sort of like permanent irreversible uh, damage, quite frankly, uh, as you are with TRT. Really, when you go on TRT for any significant period of time, you should basically assume that you've ir irrevocably changed your body um, in that, uh, you know, you may permanently alter essentially your ability to produce your own testosterone. That's why I think guys should not consider it a light decision especially when they're young, to go on TRT, steroids, or SARMs. Because when you do, the evidence tends to show that there's permanent, often, changes that happen. It doesn't mean that you're like going to permanently be shut off, but you may not ever go back, quite frankly, to what you were before, especially if you've been using it for more than a few months. Uh, steroid cycles, uh, TRT cycles, SARM cycles, etc., do oftentimes uh, create sort of long-term, sort of permanent changes. Which is why it's like, yeah, most of the time when people go on TRT, they're over the age of 50 and they've kind of made a permanent decision to go on it for the rest of their life, uh, which is a totally different scenario than what we're doing here, which is, you know, folks over, uh, you know, in our protocol over the age of 18, they can take it safely uh, and there's no sort of like permanent repercussions or, or decisions. The real sad part really, honestly, if, if I were to finish up with this, is that people advertise SARMs as the next thing that does not have all these crazy side effects as testosterone right and people advertise it as it's much safer it's much better for you it's much this for you it's much that for you it doesn't shrink your you know testicles it doesn't do this and i think you know not listening to you now knowing that that might be just fugazi uh yeah it's, it's actually unfortunate because um, as I was clarifying to you, there's a huge difference between SERMs and SARMs, right? We, 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 even though they sound the same, I should stop using that term because it causes confusion. Uh, you know, SERMs are estrogen blockers, like I was talking about, very safe, uh, relatively speaking. Uh, SARMs are essentially just new designer steroids. Uh, the thing that's, that's actually confuses people, they say that it's safer. It's actually not. If you actually talk to people who are familiar with their use, I would actually argue that uh, at least well-studied steroids that have been around for decades are safer oftentimes depending on which steroids obviously or trt would be safer than actually sarms one we, they've been around for decades they've been using thousands of people there's lots of research literature we at least understand them and understand their pros and cons we don't really understand sarms very well so for instance there was a myth a couple years ago when they first hit the market that they're not suppressive absolutely not true people have done blood work on them they are just as suppressive as trt or sarms they absolutely shut down your your testes uh, they cause suppression, they cause uh, testicular shrinkage and infertility. People go on them for eight weeks and they're already seeing their testosterone levels shut down. So they're absolutely suppressive. That's one thing. The other part though is the whole pitch around them is that the uh, anabolic to androgenic ratio is favorable, meaning you get a lot of the anabolic uh, muscle building components without the androgenic uh, side effects of prostate growth and stimulation. That may be true with SARMs like LGD 40, 33, for instance, um, in terms of that ratio. But the thing that people don't un understand though is one, uh, they still may be liver toxic because you're taking these as oral. And any, basically any oral anabolic compound that you're taking through your mouth has to be processed through the liver. And there's in fact published case studies of people who have had serious liver injuries from taking SARMs 
You can go look it up on Reddit. People have actually shared their medical notes from their doctor when they got hospitalized. Now it's rare that it happens, but it's these are these are published facts. And then the second thing is it really messes with your lipids. Um, and in that case, they're actually not very safe in terms of heart disease, right? Uh, there's significant decreases in HDL, significant increases in uh, LDL, uh, in ApoB, all these sort of critical lipid markers, which basically means they're not safe for long-term use, right? Because you're promoting an atherogenic, essentially lipid profile. And so ironically, TRT, uh, even though it has the, 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 shut, the side effects of the shutdown, if you're using an injectable or non-oral form of it, doesn't mess with lipids as much. So in, in some ways, SARMs are actually inferior to TRT because of the adverse, essentially, effects on lipids and thus the adverse cardiovascular effects that they're having. So uh, I obviously don't advocate the use of SARMs, but if you're going to use them, I would absolutely not use them long-term orally uh, because of the adverse uh, lipid effects. So unfortunately, people don't know this because you know underground sites that are selling this aren't going to tell you about all these toxic effects. These are stuff that just people anecdotally on Reddit and other sites, at least the responsible people who do blood work when they're taking drugs, they, they study it and they're like, boy, this really messed with my lipids. It, there's a risk essentially. Uh, and you, it's up to you to obviously do the cost benefit analysis of that. What was that? Sorry, what, what, what are lipids again? Lipids are blood fats. Essentially, when you do uh, a blood test, uh, there's lipids like your essentially your cholesterol levels, LDL, HDL, triglycerides uh, levels. Um, the CGM company has a really good guide, essentially explaining what lipids are. If you if you uh, go on our Dr. Cam Radio Show uh, channel, I'll paste the link, and you can read all about them uh, afterwards. But anyway, it's uh, it's it's essentially the markers that we look at in our blood to assess your risk factor for heart disease or cardiovascular disease. Um, and it, uh, SARMs essentially mess them up. Good thing about what we do in terms of enclomiphene doesn't have any adverse effects on your lipids or your liver, uh, unlike SARMs. So, all right, we are 10 minutes over time. Uh, a lot of good questions this week uh, on the podcast and call and radio show. Thanks everyone who's joining us on Discord, Clubhouse, uh, Twitter Spaces, and YouTube Live. Uh, I realize there's a bunch of questions that we didn't get to Get to, sorry folks on YouTube, um, we will actually archive these and I will answer them next week. We have this radio show every Thursday at six o'clock Pacific time. So uh, we do get to the backlog of questions or you can obviously call in uh, and ask them live. So I hope everyone has a very happy uh, and enjoyable New Year's. If you are working on New Year's resolutions, uh, check out an article I wrote called The Keystone Habit. Uh, which I alluded to earlier. I'll also post this on our Discord, discord.maximustribe.com. Uh, it's my system for making sure that you're not one of the 19% of people, uh, the, the few people who are, are able to do their New Year's resolutions and that you can keep them up successfully throughout the year. All right, folks, uh, enjoy the rest of your 2021 and I'll catch you in the new year.